This is a 3CR podcast. And this is Published or Not. The last time I chatted with this author was back in 2020, four months into COVID. It was not only physical contact that separated us, but distance. I was making radio from home and you were in New Zealand. This was a terrible time to publish a book, but because of the interesting content and good writing, it went on to be a bestseller and Melbourne Prize of Literature winner. The Animals in That Country was the book, and Laura Jean McKay is the author. Laura, welcome. Thank you so much. It's so good to be here. And were you under a blanket last oh, time we spoke? Yeah, I, I was. I was under a doona. Not looking particularly good, but, you know, we were still learning. You had a dedication to sound, though, <laughs> no matter the circumstances. <laughs> Your new book, Gunflower, continues to have animals at the heart, but how does it differ Gunflower, uh, in a way, um, leaps from the animals in that country. If In the animals in that country, I was looking at how we communicate and miscommunicate with animals. And in a way, I was looking at the disconnect between species. In Gunflower, I actually go into the animal voices. So there are stories in there from the perspective of a a loner, sort of masculine kangaroo. And there are stories in there uh, from a group of chickens told in the collective (laughs) wee voice. (laughs) We'll get onto that one later. You've written these short stories over a number of years. So many different settings. There's the city, the beach, the uh, ocean, the country. How how have you grouped them? They're grouped under the quite lofty themes of birth, life and death. And in a way, I think I put that in there, as writers do, just to try to bring some coherence to the many ideas that I was grappling with. But once I put those categories in there, I realised that that's what I'm really, really speaking about in this collection. The fact that uh, no matter what species you come from, no matter where you live in the world, we are all born we all live and we all die. And and that is a, a collective experience that we can embrace. And I think a short story collection is a, is a really joyful play on collective experience. It's a lot of different stories coming together in one book that you can access, dip in and out of, and, and just enjoy in many different readerly ways. So... First section, birth. And the first story is a very was of a very pregnant Jean. But we'll talk about that one later. The next one has the opening line. Shannon had completely forgotten to have children and it was so embarrassing. Now, this was just a snippet of a story and a most unusual birth and beginning was the next story, flying rods. A bite causes another body to transform into what? I I love that you the way you read Jan because you really you really tap into the heart of stories and you're right when I'm looking at birth I'm not looking just at um, physical birth but the idea of the birth of of you know notions and um, and birth as a as a positive positive and a negative thing and in flying rods that was. My, my metamorphosis story, really, I'm a huge Kafka fan, but also it was from my direct experience of metamorphosis. I, at the time, I'd been bitten by, by a mosquito and that mosquito had given me a disease called chikungunya, which aid workers call dengue on crack. Very painful disease, polyarthritis, my skin was peeling off me in sheets. I turned bright red and I was very delirious. And in this state, I thought, well... 
the only thing that could possibly be happening to my human body is that I'm actually turning into a mosquito. <laughs> and once that was quite a relief, once I realised that. And then, of course, I turned to stories and I, I penned this piece about a woman turning into a mosquito and that not, not necessarily being a bad thing for her. You know, she's she's ready to explore I, life as a bug. This, this detail was not in the book and I loved it. Fantastic. And the humour. There's humour of reincarnation, even for a chook in an egg laying farm, wondering whether she would come back as a 600 or an 800 or even a broiler. And then we have the contrast to the sadness of nine days. What was it going to take nine days to do? Nine Days is a story I wrote a long time ago and it's about a woman who's just had a stillbirth and in nine days she'll be able to bury her child. And it's really, I always really admire uh, the writers who can capture that domestic moment, that domestic horror really. And mm. I think it's extraordinarily hard to do. Um, a lot of writers attempt it. Um, I, I think it's not an easy thing to write about. And I really, really wanted to capture that moment in suburbia where a woman is basically as alone as she could possibly be. She's waiting for her partner to come home from the hospital. And that's... I think BJ Cox said this really well the other day when um, when she was talking about Gunflower. She was saying that with the thing about short stories is that you don't necessarily want the story to go on for the length of a novel. Mm. You don't necessarily want to read about a woman feeling extremely alone in a house after the death of a child for an entire novel. But in a short story, you can just capture that moment, um, experience it, and then you know maybe have a think about it and then move on to the next thing. Oh, the next thing. Well, let's get into the next section, <laughs> life. Uh, a job for many teenagers working in the supermarket. What does one girl learn about her own abilities in Smoko? Oh, I loved writing Smoko. Smoko is probably one of the most autobiographical stories in there. <laughs> mm, I, I thought there might have been a tinge of knowledge. That's right. I was I was a Delhi girl in the in the 90s in central Queensland and it really is about power and all my stories look at power and and the little little scraps of power that you do try to get when you're working in a supermarket deli at minimum wage in high school and and this young woman uh, she's taken up smoking and everyone there just loves to smoke it's set in the 90s so it is a period piece and she smoko is about to be taken away you know smoko is the break that smokers get and they long for it all through the day and it's it's your little bit of power in that powerless place and yeah I mean it's a celebration of smoking it's a celebration of oh. of, of work of difficult labor and protest <laughs> and protest she learns that she can you know do things for herself that's right and then Gunflower the short story which gives the book its title takes us into a very different world Gunflower Feminazi ship of death floating act of terrorism what was it Gunflower is a, an abortion ship uh, which has become lost at sea. And I, I thought that this particular story was a novel uh, and I'd been trying to write it for a long time at the same time as writing a few other <laughs> books. And I couldn't quite 
get the ship to move in the way that I wanted to. I was a little bit confused about the issues. And then as I was grappling with it, Roe versus Wade happened in America. So that's the overturning of, of, um, of, of reproductive rights uh, laws in the United States. And I realised that setting this story in the United States uh, of a woman who is you know, in her mid-40s, in a relationship, uh, seeking an abortion and the lengths she has to go to to get that. That seemed like a story that needed to be told and a story that I could explore both realistically and speculatively in that, you know, this ship sort of becomes becomes lost at sea uh, and it's, it's, it's wandering through the oceans. So that was, that was very fascinating to me. It was a very hard story to write. It was novelistic, mm. I think, in, in its scope. Um, but I'm really – and I worked very hard with my publisher, Marika Webb-Pullman, on that one. I'm really pleased that it came together. And to me, that's what the whole collection hangs from. That's the centerpiece and thematically, um, you know, it really is dealing with birth, life and death on this one, uh, you know, female crude ship. A quote from that one, the stranger that was growing in this pregnancy, so powerful that its very existence divided nation, drove people to harm themselves and turn against their loved ones. Mm. And you think about, you know, one issue that mm-hmm. just does that. Oh. Well, <clears throat> the next grouping, death. Well, we had death of people, uh, one grieving for a sister or witnessing a motorbike accident and the threat of the Chinese plague for an old man. Now, that Chinese plague, we know what it was. But what did he want his death to look like? The elderly man, he wanted, I mean, it's a story about um, the idea of freedom and what the word freedom has become in COVID time. Suddenly it went from, you know, uh, um, you know, something that everyone seeks to a very sort of politicised word that that was used, you know, in in anti-vax movements um, and also in COVID denial. So um, I suppose the elderly man in this story represents someone who is immunocompromised and his family's very, very protective of him and he just wants to swim out into the ocean forever and that's his idea of freedom. But he's not a very good swimmer. So he, <laughs> he befriends uh, this woman who is a COVID denier and, and, you know, who probably does have COVID herself and he's, she sort of puts him at risk. Um, I suppose both in the, in they're both pursuing freedom but the ideas of freedom have become so different at this point that um, it actually becomes quite a risky business. There's another grandfather who went off with a bang at two o'clock and perhaps women would celebrate the death of a relationship by doing a nudie run (laughs) (laughs) or knifing a wild pig to death. What type of person would put that as an interest on their online dating profile. There is or was, I haven't been on there for a while, but there was a very, you know, very prolific Facebook page called, I think it was Hunter Wants a Wife or Pigger Wants a Wife. And it was people who were into hunting, seeking like-minded love people. And the photos, instead of putting up a photo of yourself, you know, maybe doing a bit of sport or, you know, drinking a coffee, you know, it was um, you with a with a pig's head. It's, I mean, it's, but it is, you know, it is a really strong community, very passionate community and I was sort of lucky enough to be drawn into that community when I was living and researching in the Northern Territory. Yeah, it's outside of my experience but it was was pretty fascinating. And then there is the death of a planet. This is in contrast to the idyllic illustration of cows grazing on the cover. In 
279, the son asked his father if birds are like cows. Why? In that story, the flooding has happened. It said in, I, I see that story as being set in Aotearoa, which is a place that I lived for a few years until recently. I mean, I, I remember reading somewhere that all that we'll have left, if the, if the sixth extinction continues the way it is, is the farm animals. That's what we breed. So we'll be left with the cows and the chickens and the sheep and all of the other animals will be gone. So in a way, it's this child saying, well, do you have them... Are they left because you love them the most? Like, why did you save them? Why did you make so many of them? And it's like, well, no, it's because we, we wanted to eat them. You know, <laughs> it's not a love thing. It's a, it's a use thing. Well, some of the themes, as you say, that run through the book, that, and others could be religion or even older cultural stories. But I want to look at cats. Now, I couldn't believe it. And there's a quote, My parents were like cats, bringing the dead and the dropped and the sorry home. Or another one, an angry cat crammed in a box. The hollow hiss in the murk, the piles of fur. Ah, Laura Jean McKay, what's this interest in cats? What is it about cats in this collection? I love that you've picked up on this because I, it was something that I suspected <laughs> I was doing, but I've never, it wasn't a conscious choice, the cats. You know, the cats were, and this happens, fiction writers know this, characters just arrive sometimes in your fiction and it's not for you to question them it's for you to try to craft the story in the best way you can around this disruption and this is a collection where cats have appeared the first story is about cats and they they keep on popping up and it's funny because I I had cats in my childhood but I'm I would say I'm a dog person if if anything Uh, but maybe it's the I really admire cats because they're probably the animal in our life which is the most wild domesticated animal. You know, we have them in our homes and they are our companion, but they are they are wild as well. What they do with their nights, that is wild animal behaviour. You know, you don't see the dog going out and, and killing all the birds in the neighbourhood. <laughs> so I think there's something about cats that does straddle that contradiction, which I'm really inter- interested in. And it was the same in the animals in that country with the dingo, um, that wild and feral and, and domesticated animal, which ca- humans love to categorise animals and we can't quite put our fingers on cats. The first story is called Cats at the Firefront and it's about this this group of cats, this, this enormous shed of cats who have all been declawed and decanined. Why? Uh, that was a really, really... This is an imagination gone weird. <laughs> well, that's the thing. It's actually not that weird because, you know, we, we have... It was a play on, I suppose, the the chicken the chicken battery farm. Um, you know, we chickens are lovely animals, and they're quite they're very sociable, and they love being together, and they love scratching around their their forest animals. So I thought, well, why not why not cats? What about if we farmed cats? They've got great fur. Why do why do we choose chickens? to put in farms and not cats why do we you know in Australia anyway you know why do we eat cows and not dogs uh, there's a great book called something like you know um, who we love who we eat who we you know uh, talking about animals and the different different categorizations for them the last one was the king and it t- I had to reread it to realize it was a lion <laughs> telling the story 
um, if everyone has a different take on who it is, you think it's a lion. Someone else has said it's a dingo. For me, it's a kangaroo, but I love ah. that it's that this is an open. Well, short stories are like a bag of mixed lollies. There's going to be something that sparks interest. Laura Jean McKay has given us just that with Gunflower, especially as they are grouped into birth, life and death. Thank you so much, Laura Jean. Thank you. I love talking to you. <laughs> Facebook and pigs. I think it would be a site full of boars, really. But anyway, um, that's my take on it. I've got a completely different knoll. The custody of children can be a fraught issue when parents separate, but what happens when a child is taken to live overseas? This scenario is the basis of Darren Mort's novel, Isla's Song. So, Darren, welcome to 3CR. Thank you so much for having me, David. It's now, great to be here. You actually work in the field of family law. How I much do. of that has informed this work? Um, an immense amount has informed the work. I've been in the family court for over 30 years and... I think the book is emotionally nuanced as a result of my experiences in the family court, or the house of broken dreams, as I call it. Yeah. But also then, the role of, or the uh, sort of emphasis that's given to children has changed over time. Absolutely. The voice of a child is a huge focus in the court now, and um, through my work, um, I intend to make sure it's, it's raised there on the platform because it's so important, because often they don't have a voice. Yes, and they, and they need to have that voice to have an opinion, whereas often parents are wanting their opinion heard, they forget about the child. Absolutely. So what we have here is a mother, Jess, who takes Isla, her daughter, from Camberwell to Stromness in Scotland. Scotland. Aye, but here we go. Where is Stromness? Um, Stromness is, um, yeah, well, it's in the Orkney Islands at the north of Scotland, so a nice cold, windy, rough area, wild it would be. And I think at the time Jess would have arrived there, it would have probably had a population of less than 2,000 people. So it seems rather extreme to take Isla to the far ends of the world, literally. You know, it's it's in the North Orkneys, uh, so isolated. But here we go. You go into um, Jess's physical, emotional and psychological background, uh, there are challenges she's facing uh, when giving birth to Isla and what flows on from that. So what are some of the problems she's experiencing uh, with Isla? Well, the- well, I think, um, look, mental health was a, was a terrible thing um, in the era that the book was set in, in the 1950s and 60s. Um, the um, diagnosis was usually all over the place. The treatment was quite um, quite significant and everlasting and went with electric shock treatment and things like that, which was emanating at that time. Um, so I think despite the fact that Jess is a nurse, she didn't have a lot of insight into a problem or thought that she could overcome it. Um, so she had undiagnosed postnatal depression. She had little support from her husband at the time, or that's how she perceived the world. And she just needed support that she wasn't getting at home, and her sister lived in London. So that's how she got that support. And she feels as if she is responsible for supporting the family because Oliver's a musician. Yeah, well, she's um, a breadwinner, essentially. Um, Oliver's money was 
coming in in dribs and drabs. He had he used to teach um, people piano lessons at home and he used to compose. But he's like an artist, like any artist, and um, money is not free-flowing usually, so it's it's tough. But Jess's understanding of her own situation, I mean, at one point she's even blaming her mother. You know, it's my mother's fault. She never taught me how to do this. There's uh, sort of help trying to get the, the new baby to suckle and all of these sorts of things. Um, has much... Well, what has changed in that regard in terms of the mental health of, of women and postnatal depression and all of this sort of thing? Can it be effectively addressed or not? Well, I think it can be these days. I think there's some fantastic treatments around for depression, um, medication and otherwise. Um, it's right out there in the community, mental health. We've got huge organisations like Beyond Blue, um, and there's a lot of support. And, and women generally are much better at accessing those supports than men um, because gets back to tribal days sitting around the fire while the men are hunting the the water buffalo I suppose but I, I think women are very much more emotionally attuned than men but also then men not really having an empathy or understanding of what postnatal depression is that's right that's right now you've got an irony here in the novel because um, Jess feels she can't cope uh, with Isla raising it, uh, holding up the household together. But at the same time, she takes Isla with her. So, I mean, that sort of um, division within herself about, you know, Isla in some ways is the cause of my problems or one of the focuses she sees, but at the same time, taking Isla with her. Well, I think the sad thing about family court issues and matrimonial splits and things of that nature is that People don't think about the child. Um, they become very proprietorial. And as far as Jess was concerned, Isla was her property. Mm. Simple. Now, here's another problem. We've got a chase that occurs. Oliver yeah. follows uh, Jess and Isla to England, but uh, just misses in uh, catching them. But there are legal difficulties because... Jess actually hasn't broken the law. No, she hasn't. In fact, I purposely set the book back in the 1950s and 60s. The Hague Convention only came about in 1984, and the Hague Convention set up a central authority and signatories to that convention, and the central authority acts in terms of retrieving children who have been abducted. Um, but back in those days, no central authority. Um, Oliver didn't have the money, of course, for lawyers. And where, where were they going to start anyhow? So the only access to anyone he had was police. Well, were the police and they were fairly useless. But also then, you've got another little reference here. I'm sorry, sir, but we have no jurisdiction across the border. So right. when they go from England to Scotland, it's a whole other exactly. jurisdiction. Yeah, yeah. So poor Oliver was... Um, faced with many hurdles and um, as read as um, stated in the book he continued returning to Scotland as as his pilgrimage as an ode to his daughter I suppose in an attempt to actually find her That's whatever right. may happen now we get to lies and letters because um, what does Jess do to uh, sort of cover the fact that Oliver's no longer around or can we give this away or not? Uh, probably not. Probably not. Okay. So, there, there, <laughs> but what happens is um, a single parent 
will often make up or fabricate a reality. Absolutely. Uh, around a situation. Um, but also then, I think we can give this one away, that, that Oliver's continually writing letters to Jess's sister. Yes, that's right. And so you actually tease us here a little because will uh, Isla come across these letters or not? And so this is the last sort of thread that is. would yeah. help uh, establish a connection yeah. because it's it's broken. Well, I th- yeah, yeah, it is. And I think, I think we can give away um, one clue in the sense that when this little um, five-year-old is um, perched at some dock waiting to get on a ferry to cross over to Stromness, um, her mother tells her her father's dead, that he died mm. on, on the way over. So you have this, you have this um, compelling emotion that Isla has in wanting to trust her mother because she is their only support and not wanting to pry too much as things, cats get let out of the bag so to speak, but she's she's torn. She's very much torn with that with that emotion with and her mum. That continues through Isla's life because Isla becomes a musician herself, but has to actually lie to her own mother to pursue a, a musical career. Yes. So the foundation for a family relationship then is undermined continually because of these uh, it is, and and I love I loved um, when Jan was um, interviewing um, Laura just before about when Laura said the characters just pop in. Well, Morag is one of those characters. She just arrived on the scene, and she's such, uh, you know, a powerhouse of a woman, and she is really Isla's guardian angel, isn't she? Well, teaches um, Isla the piano, the good Scottish woman uh, <laughs> there, um, and encourages her yeah in many ways providing the encouragement that uh jess can't and jess is still struggling by the way with her condition uh, working at a hospital and such like but not necessarily being reliable that's right so has jess come to terms with her own demons her own condition or not i'd like to think by the end of the book she has um someone said to me the other day there's your sequel because um, there's a scene which we won't disclose at the end, but there is a door that's open there or left open. But, yes, facing up to the reality of what you've done, because at the end of the novel, and again, we're into um, interesting territory here because we can't give anything away, <laughs> but then how do you account for the past? How do you account for the lies? How Because Jess has basically led um, a conventional life uh, sorry, Isla has led a conventional life. I mean, has gone to university, uh, done all of these sorts of things, has become a musician. Yes. Uh, and, and world-renowned. Um, and But there's that accounting right at the end. Um, but what are the problems then well, for children who've been separated for decades? Because the novel covers over two decades. They're huge, David. There's a woman that's referred to in the book that is my sort of... Um, Idol, um, a lady by the name of Dr. Marilyn Freeman, who specialises in children who have been abducted. And it is the research that she's done is quite compelling. And in fact, with children who are abducted, um, once they find out, once they grow up and find out what the reality is, 
um, they often turn on both parents. Um, usually in this case, it would be Jess because of the fact that she told her lies and abducted her and prevented her having a relationship with um, her father. And Je um, the child would also turn on the father who's left behind for not looking hard enough. So there's this really strong, compelling emotion that flows through children like um, Isla um, that presents many demons for them to deal with. But also then, how do you uh, establish a relationship with a parent you haven't seen for two decades, exactly. given the life that parent has led, and the future in store for those parents? And what's um, Because you haven't had a chance to uh, tune in to what's been happening in their lives. Yeah, I like to think of humans not being all that special. I think we think we're a lot more special than what we are. And um, Isla was spent a lot of time with her father growing up. Um, she was with her father during that critical phase of development between nine months and three years. She would have very much attached to her father and would have given her some emotional, psychological and physical stability at that stage. So rekindling that 20 years on, there was an essence there, there was a base, there was, some, there was a platform to relaunch that relationship. Yeah. And there is the image there, uh, the title of the book, Isla's Song. What is yes. the significance of that? Well, um, Oliver, being the music teacher, would sit down with Isla when she was about three and start. they'd start writing this little song together. And um, the song grew as she became five and it just happened to, the manuscript just happened to be in her school bag when she was abducted. And so it really becomes her signature song. Um, as she grows up, it becomes embellished and it becomes one of her... Um, concert songs. But know. it's also a, a thread and a connection with her father. With her dad. Yeah. yeah. Given that we've said that separation makes it difficult to yeah. forge yeah. a bond. And that thread is continual in the book. Well, the story is Isla's song, Love of a Child. The author is Darren Mort, and it was a Wilkinson publishing release. So, Darren, thank you very much for coming in and talking with it's us today. It's been a delight. It's been fantastic. Thank you very much. And I was speaking with Laura Jean McKay about her book, Gunflower by Scribe. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.